following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 2, that's page number 837 on the, in the Bibles there in front of you. Just listening to that song, I was thinking about, you know, Sanctity of Human Life Week and what it represents. And I, I just wanted to remind you, I'm thinking about the sermon here in just a moment, the text. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about abortion, when we talk about Crisis Pregnancy Center and what they do, I want you to remember that it's not just a ministry we support. It's not just a line item on our budget. These are lives at stake. Little, helpless defenseless lives. And it's very easy for us as Christians, as believers, as people coming from a particular worldview to to think about the topic of abortion and those who either perform them or the women who go and have them done and to shun them in our hearts and minds. But when we do that, we, we, we deny the very song we just sang. The mighty is the power of the cross that it can take anyone in any circumstance and any sin and change everything for them. Get ready to go into our, our time together. And it's just a perfect song, perfect thought. Uh, I just want that to be resting on your hearts and minds as we read this text here together today, as we go to the Lord in prayer, that there is no sin, there is no, there's nothing, nothing that the cross can't overcome, that Jesus' blood can't overcome. And that's why we're here today, right? And that's why we've gathered together. So you're in Mark 2. We want to read verses 13 to 17, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for the power, the power of that cross on which he died. Verse 13, Mark writes this, that Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, we come this morning thankful, thankful for the power of the cross. We come this morning thankful that there is nothing that we bring in our hands that is acceptable to you. There's nothing that we can do that makes us worthy of you. Our worthiness is not tied up in ourselves. It is tied up in you and in your death, burial, and resurrection for us. And so with the songs we've sung this morning, now this passage that we've read, the the time we're about to spend together in your word, Lord, may that be the, the thought that trumps all others. May that be the thing that every single person in this room walks out with today, this rem- reminder, this realization That we are nothing. Nothing. We are sinners with empty hands. Nothing to bring to you. Nothing to offer. Nothing to give. You yourself 
made the sacrifice that we could not make. You yourself brought the gift that we could not give. And everything we have is because of you. And so, Lord, convict us of that this morning, I ask. Convict our hearts of our self-righteousness and of our, of our sinful way of, of judging ourselves and other people. Lord, help us to remember the grace that you have shown to totally undeserving sinners like us. And then to go out, Lord, to show that grace to others as well. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for its power. Thank you that every time we come to it, We've changed bit by bit, step by step, more into the image of Jesus. And so we come this morning asking that your spirit will do that with us now. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever been um, like really, really, really hungry? I mean, like really hungry, hungry to the point that um, whenever it was the next time came around for you to eat something, whatever it was that you ate, tasted like the greatest thing you had ever eaten in your entire life. Um, my dad used to tell me a story when I was a kid, and if you told it to me, you must have told it to me a hundred times, about the, the best chicken that he ever had in his entire life. You want to know where the best chicken my dad ever had was at? It was in a foxhole in Vietnam. That's what he said. He goes, the best chicken I ever had in my life was out of a can in a foxhole in Vietnam. And I think about that, and I think about my dad, and I kind of laugh at that, because if you knew my dad, you would realize how much he loved food. There was a story that was famous in our family growing up that got told just about every Christmas or every time we got together of one time when my dad was young, I'm guessing probably in the 10 to 12 range, 10 to 13 range, something like that. I hate Literally hate that. We're going to pull this over here. Here we go. wrong why are you crying and here was his response at uh, 10 to 13 years old he said i want to keep eating but i'm too full <laughs> through tears he loved food like from an early age he loved food and it showed uh it was all love to my dad uh, i'm a little overweight and i love food too but my dad was uh, a very large man and he had been all over the world, and he had eaten food all over the world and had loved it all and would regularly talk about things that he liked here and there. But of everything that he had ever had, he said to me again on numerous occasions that the, the best chicken he had ever had was out of a can in a foxhole in Vietnam. Now, as I thought about that, you know, it's one of those situations where you begin to wonder what's really going on in that kind of a statement. Is it that the food is really so good that government-issued chicken in a can is really all that delicious? Or is it the circumstances under which he was eating it that made it taste so good? I mean, I can only imagine in battle when you're tired and you're hungry and you're scared and you finally have a 15-minute break and so you sit down and you begin to eat, it probably tastes better than anything you would ever have before. The, the reason this came to my mind was because of something that happened to me recently in a situation just about as dangerous at the Pembroke Cinema Cafe. It was, uh, 
it was New Year's Day, and the kids wanted to go see Thor 2. And so I took Nathaniel and Nick and Grace to go see Thor 2 at the Pembroke Cinema Cafe. And if you're wondering why I left everyone else, I left Hannah because as a nine-year-old girl, the only reason she would go see Thor 2 is to get free popcorn because she doesn't like superhero action movies. They bore her. She'd rather still see, like, you know, kid, girly movies like that. That's what she likes. And I would have taken uh, Jamie and Debbie, but the only reason they would have gone as women who were older than nine was to see Thor himself, <laughs> not the movie Thor, which, as I have walked around this building, I will say I have heard a lot of that about that guy in this room. That's weird. Anyway... I digress. Uh, we went to see uh, Thor 2, and the movie started at like 145 or something, and that was the day of the New Year's bash, so I had gotten up and had gone to the football game, and then I came home, and I had to get some stuff done, and I hadn't eaten all day. So by the time I get to Cinema Cafe, I'm, I'm starving. Like, I am hungry, and I, even though I don't really like Cinema Cafe food, I've never walked out of there thinking, well, I'm glad I ate that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking I've got to have something to eat besides popcorn because I'm, I'm, I'm going to get sick if I don't eat something soon. So I don't like their pizza. I know I don't like their burgers. I don't like most of the other things. So I try something new this time. I tried a grilled chicken sandwich. So the movie's going, and the lady brings me the sandwich and sets it down. Instantly, I'm like, it's time to eat. Thank you, Jesus. All right. And I'm going into it, and I swear that was the best grilled chicken sandwich I had ever had in my life. I called Jamie on the way home, and she's like, did you eat? And I'm like, yes. And it was the best grilled chicken sandwich I have ever eaten in my life. Um, and again, in those moments, what was it? Was the sandwich really that good? Or was it just the circ? I can't imagine. Or was it the circumstances under which I was eating it that made it uh, sound or f- taste so good? Well, I had a uh, kind of a similar thing this week in studying Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to second, uh, 17. This is the second of four controversies that we're studying here in Mark chapters uh, 2, verse 1 to 3, verse 6. And as we've been going through this, we've been noting a number of of things, situations that come up in Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' life, where there's controversy surrounding it. And so we saw the first of these four controversies last week here in verses 1 through 12. And controversy number one we saw last Sunday has to do with the wrong understanding of the divinity of Jesus. If you remember back to those verses, the uh, Jesus is, is out and he's teaching there in Capernaum. He's in the house and there's a whole bunch of people gathered to him, right? And there are these four guys who want their friend healed from his paralysis. He is a paralytic, and so they bring him to the house, but they can't get in. And so what do they do? They tear a hole in the roof, and they drop him down inside. And Mark tells us that when Jesus sees their faith, a very interesting comment, remember, when he sees their faith, he says to the paralytic man the thing we all expect Jesus to say to a paralytic man, right? Son, your sins are forgiven. Not at all what you expected. And as soon as he says these words, the scribes, the Pharisees who are in the room, instantly begin questioning in their heart, who is this man? Who does he think he is? He's blaspheming. Because only God can forgive sins. And if you take apart their comments there, you begin to understand their mindset toward Jesus. They don't believe he's God, right? They see him as a man. That's why they say it. What is this man doing? He's blaspheming, which is a capital offense. It's it's a heinous thing to accuse someone of. But the reason they're accusing him of this is because they actually have pretty sound theology. Only God can forgive sins. They're right. Only God can do that. 
And so if Jesus really is just a man as they think he is, well then guess what? He really is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. But if they're wrong about that first premise, then a number of things are going to change in the story. So what does Jesus say to them? He says, look, I know what you're thinking. Which is easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home? Because clearly this is easier. It's a rhetorical question. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, and no one can prove or disprove it. But so that you know that I have the, do you remember the word? Authority. Very good. Make me happy there. Authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed. And go home. And what does he do? He picks it up and he walks out, Mark says, in front of all of them. <laughs> I love that line. He walks out in front, right past the scribes, right past the Pharisees, in front of all of them, and he goes home. And we realize in that scene that Jesus is more than just a man, right? The idea that Mark has been driving home over and over and over again throughout this, this uh, gospel so far. He is who? He's God. And he does have the authority to forgive sins, unlike anyone else. Controversy number one erupted around a wrong theological expectation of who Jesus was. And today we get to see the second controversy, which is going to erupt around a wrong expectation of how Jesus should live. And it was this study that for some reason, whether it was the text or whether it was me and my circumstances, this is why it was similar to that story I began with, was just very convicting to me this week. Very, very convicting, very encouraging, very challenging. And I want to share it with you so that you can understand. Maybe it's, maybe it's not just me. Maybe it's just the text. I, you'll, we'll find out. Controversy number two is this. It has a, to do with a wrong understanding of the lifestyle of Jesus. How, he, how should he live? How should someone who's a teacher like Jesus is, who, who is a righteous man like Jesus is, how should he live in an unrighteous world? And just like last week, we're going to do this, the same pattern. We're just going to walk through this scene in four parts and then make some observations and applications at the end that I hope will be helpful. So as always, we'll begin here in verse 13 with the setting. Because if you haven't picked up on it by now, Mark likes to place each of these little vignettes in their proper setting so that we can really appreciate and understand what's going on in the story and why. And so we want to take advantage of that. We want to see what it is that Mark is trying to show us. And in this particular scene, it begins with Jesus back walking by the sea, something he apparently does quite a bit because often as we work through the Gospels, we're going to find him here by the sea by the seashore and we saw him there in chapter one if you'll recall when he was calling simon and andrew and james and john to follow him remember that story he's walking along the sea and he sees these sets of brothers and so he he calls these men to be his disciples and they follow him that story he's all by himself but note here he's not alone mark tells us this time that the crowd is coming to him and as you would expect someone who uh, says that they came to earth to preach as you would expect him to do what is he doing? He's teaching them. So, so far, so good. Everything seems fine. Everything seems normal. There's nothing here unexpected or out of the ordinary until you get to verse 14, which is where the story takes a sharp and unexpected term. In verse 14, Mark says that as he passed by, 
he saw Levi, also known as Matthew, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and and followed him. Now, when we read this scene, the thing I think that stands out to us first is the same thing that stood out to us back in chapter 1 when Jesus called the four men, the two sets of brothers, to follow him. It's how quick it seems. We, we just, if you remember back in Mark 1, he's walking along the seashore and he sees these brothers out and they're working on their boats, they're working on their nets. And so he says to them, follow me. And they're like, oh, okay. And they just get up and, you know, go on and do their thing. Follow him. And we read that and we're like, are they, do they have great faith? Or are they incredibly stupid? What, what's the, but lucky, what, what's the issue here? And what I tried to show you there in Mark 1 when we saw it in those two examples as he called each set of brothers was that actually there was a longer history there than what Mark had recorded. As you look back in the other Gospels, you see other encounters of Jesus with those men. And so we know that there's more going on than what Mark records. Mark in chapter 1 is simply recording the moment when Jesus calls these men to follow him. Here in Mark chapter 2 with Levi we can only assume that that is what's happening again. That this isn't some random thing where Jesus just happens to see Levi at a booth and he's like, you know what, I think you'd make a good disciple. And Levi goes, you know what, I think you make a great teacher. Why don't we get together? I, I don't think that's what's happening. I think there has to be a backstory here. We just, don't, we just don't know what it is. So for us, as we read this scene, we think, well, that's what stands out, right? No, not really. If you were an original reader of Mark, if you were sitting in a house listening to Mark read the story to you or tell the story to you, the thing that would stand out is not how quickly Levi or Matthew follows Jesus. It's that Jesus even would call Levi in the first place. That would be scandalous to you. And to understand why that is, why, why a man like Jesus, who's considered a rabbi, a prophet, a righteous man, why it's scandalous for him to call this, this tax collector to be a disciple, you have to understand something about taxes in the ancient world. Who's excited about learning about ancient taxes? Thank you. You're going to heaven. Uh, no. <laughs> Just kidding. That was blasphemy. That was but a joking blasphemy, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> First of all, remember who's in charge here. It's Rome, right? Israel, Palestine is under Roman occupation, and Rome, like any good political system, has to collect revenue, taxes, in order to operate. And so here's what they would typically do. Uh, they would call in all of the governors or kings or whatever their titles were from all the various districts, and they'd bring them to Rome, and they'd say, okay, so you're in charge of the district of Palestine. Your responsibility for taxes is to bring us back $1 million. All right. Or, wow, okay, $1 million. Great. So, so the, the district governor, king, whoever, whatever his title is, goes back home, and he says, I have to bring $1 million back to Rome. Okay, you, come here. You're going to go out, and you're going to collect $2 million. A million of us going to go to Rome, a million of it's going to stay here for us to, to get our stuff done. And, by the way, if you can get any more than $2 million, you can keep it. That's the incentive, see? And so this guy then goes out, and he finds other people under him, and he says, all right, you're in charge of this part of the district, and you're in charge of this part of the district, and you're in charge of this part. You each have to raise 
uh, $600,000. And if you get any more than that, you get to keep it. You, you see the pattern here? It's building in a system of incentives so that each level, each layer of the, of the tax chain here, someone's taking a little bit of money out of the pot. Ultimately, the, the right amount has to roll up. And if you don't get enough, you're in trouble, like probably trouble like that. But if you can get extra, you get to keep it. So by the time he gets down to the bottom level, which is where apparently Levi is, Levi looks like a bottom level guy because he's sitting in a tax booth in Capernaum. You are pretty desperate to raise the right amount of money plus extra so that you can live. Now, if all of your, your, your sustenance and life, your ability to provide for your family rests on you collecting money from folks who don't want to give it to you, what kind of practices do you think you might employ to get it? Lies, threats, violence, all kinds of wicked and evil things that tax collectors were known for. This is part of why they were hated. And so here's Levi, and he's sitting at a tax booth, most likely near the port in Capernaum, and pause, just to throw this out. If you've forgotten, Capernaum is, is an important city because it's there in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's right on the, the line between two districts, and it's on a road that goes east-west, and there's a port there, and so there's tax booths everywhere. It's a tax hub, if you want to think of it that way. Here he is. He's collecting taxes. He's not the only one in town. There's a whole team of them doing it. And and he's a member of this team of tax collectors. And everyone in town hates him. Everyone in town hates this man. Uh, First one's obvious. He's a thief. The second one is because he's in league with the people who are reigning and ruling over them. He's in bed with the Romans. They're traitor. He's a traitor to his people. And so the eyes of many in Jesus' day would look on this man with, with detest. They would detest him. They would hate him. He'd be the lowest of the low. I was trying to think about what would be an equivalent, an equivalent sin in our culture and in our society. And the only thing that I think would even come close to that of a tax collector in their society is pedophile. And if you think that's really strong, Oftentimes, they were referred to as being worse than lepers. And we've already talked about lepers, okay? They they were the worst of the worst. And so here is Jesus, this rabbi, this righteous man, this prophet, as he's viewed by many of his contemporaries, calling Levi, a tax collector, to follow him? That's outrageous. It's about to get a lot worse. Because the controversy in this scene doesn't erupt around Jesus calling Levi to be a disciple. It erupts over what Jesus does next. In verse 15, you see Jesus' questionable act. Because apparently, the first thing that Levi does after deciding to follow Jesus is to throw a party in his honor. Right? He's going to throw a party. And so Levi invites Jesus and the other disciples over to his house. He, He brings it into his home for a meal. And who does he invite to join them for this party in his house? Well, he invites the people that he knows. In fact, he invites the only people who would even show up at this party, and that's the other tax collectors and, Mark says, sinners. And Mark tells us here there are many of these people who come. And what does Jesus do in this setting then? Well, get ready for this. He, he eats with them. 
Because that's what Mark is referring to here when he says that Jesus reclined at table with them. If you have to picture a a table in in first century Palestine, it would be very low to the ground, and you would rest like this on one arm on pillows, and and this would be a formal meal. You might not eat every meal this way, but for an important guest, someone who's coming into your house that's important, you're going to recline at table with them. Jesus is having this formal dinner here with these guys. And just to point out the obvious, Mark wants us to see that not only is Jesus doing this, but he's actually leading all of his disciples who are following him at this moment to do the same. You talk about an unusual night, an unusual dinner party. You have a house full of tax collectors and sinners eating dinner in this formal way with Jesus and all of his disciples? Well, that leads us to the controversy then in verse 16, because Mark writes, when the scribes and the Pharisees see this, that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, they ask a really deep question. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why? They're dumbfounded by this, because they would never do this, never in a million years. In fact, they would say that this very act is sinful and wrong. Because to eat with these kinds of people runs all sorts of reputational, spiritual, ritual risks. Number one, you could be associated with them. People might actually think you're, you're a tax collector too, or at least you approve of it, right? That you're, you're with them in this stuff. Or, or number two, you could become ritually and ceremonially unclean as a result of your contact with them because they're around Gentiles and they're wicked. They do all, who knows what they're doing? Don't get around them. Number three, you could be seen as giving approval of what they do as if, as if you're fine with it. Pharisees would never do this kind of thing. As people who pursued spiritual purity above everything else, there is no way that a Pharisee would ever, ever have been caught dead in a tax collector's home with people like this. As people who held themselves to the highest and most conservative spiritual standards, there's no way they're going to eat with them. That There's a lot of religious overtones even in that comment as people who held unquestioned national and religious allegiance to god there's no way they would enter the house of a traitor no way whatsoever i mean maybe maybe if a tax collector came to his senses and he repented of his sins and he turned his life around and he had shown evidence for some time that he was a changed man that he was no longer what he was maybe after a while they would have something to do with that kind of person. But to just go to them and eat with them and call one of them to be your disciple just as they are, never, never. They're dumbfounded by this. Why? Why does he do this, they ask? And as always, it's a question Jesus is most willing to answer. In verse 17, Mark says that when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's a short response. Man, is it powerful. Incredibly powerful. Because Jesus, as he often does here, he uses an illustration to make a point. One that sticks in your mind really, really well. He says, you don't go see the doctor when you're well. I mean, in our day we do. I have to go get a physical soon, and I am not looking forward to that. That's because that's our day. In Jesus' day, you don't go see the doctor if you're well. That's a great, great way of living. Right, men? That was pathetic. I thought the guys would be with me on that one. 
No, you don't. Only sick people go see doctors. Well, in a similar way then, Jesus says, I didn't call to, or come to call righteous people to myself. I came to call sinners. You see, righteous people don't need him. Righteous people don't need a savior. Just like someone who's well doesn't need a doctor. Someone who's righteous doesn't need a savior. That's obvious. No, of course, Jesus came only, only to help sinners because they're the ones who actually need him. Now, I hope you're picking up on the sarcasm in that comment, the irony in that comment, because how many righteous people are there? One? Jesus, yes. I hope that's the one you're referring to. Apart from him, it's zero, okay? It's nada, nothing, no one, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. In God's eyes, there are no righteous people. And yet, despite that, there are plenty of people, are there not, in this world who see themselves as righteous? Who look at themselves and see absolutely nothing that God would be unhappy with. Why why wouldn't he love me? Just like I am, I'm such a wonderful person. Well... That describes the Pharisees to a T. They were the righteous ones who were dumbfounded that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. And personally, I think that the reason Mark calls them sinners here is a little bit more irony with the, with the, the Pharisees in the room. Because that's how they saw these other people. They're sinners. We are not the sinners. We are the righteous. These are the sinners. And he's eating with the sinners. They would never do that. How dare he do that? Far too righteous to need Jesus. They are far too righteous to need a Savior. And so, guess what? Jesus doesn't go to them. He doesn't go trying to win the Pharisees, does he? He talks to them. He speaks truth to them. He says woe to them. He warns them. But where does Jesus spend his time? He goes to the people who know who they really are. He goes to the sinner. Not after they've cleaned up their act or turn their lives around, or after they've proven that they deserve it. He goes while they're still in their sin. He eats with them while they're still living in rebellion. Not because they deserve it, but because of his own mercy and grace. He goes to the sick, not after they're healed. Not after everything's better. He goes in the midst of their disease. He goes when there's something to, that's broken that needs to be repaired, when there's something dead that needs to be brought back to life. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, only those who are sick. And Jesus didn't call, come to call the righteous to himself. He came to call sinners to himself. What, what, are we, what are we supposed to take away from this encounter? Well, I read four lessons here that I took from uh, David Garland's commentary on Mark that I want to give them to you because they're, I couldn't improve on these. They're so good, and, and I want you to listen to them and think about them and ask the Spirit to convict your heart with them because he certainly convicted mine. Number one is this. Sinners do not need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. Do you believe that? Now, you might be nodding your head yes, and I'm, I'm glad you are. I really sincerely am. But do you really believe that? How many times do we see sinners around us and we're like, oh, they are so, so bad off. Their sin is so horrible, so reprehensible. Certainly they need to change something. I don't want to be around those kind of people. Well, in reality, if I look at what's going on here in the rest of the gospel, I realize that they don't have to strive to become worthy and then apply to God with some kind of a glowing resume that they've cleaned up so that he will accept them. No, 
You become worthy of Jesus simply by responding to his call. The worthiness isn't in you. The worthiness is in him. And if he's willing to eat with you, he's willing to call you, that's all you need. Number two, by eating with sinners, Jesus doesn't condone their sinful lifestyles. Rather, he shows us that these people and their lifestyles can be transformed. It's easy to curse the darkness. Easy to curse the darkness. Jesus could have stayed away and be like, well, I don't want anyone to think that I condone of tax collecting like they do, that I condone of their threats and their extortion and their violence and their dishonesty. I'm going to stay away from those people. He doesn't do that. He walks into the room and he sits down with them and he eats with them. And through that, at least one, if not others, are transformed completely by his love, grace, and mercy. They're not to be snubbed or ignored, no matter how vile or irredeemable they might seem to us. And a self-righteous contempt for sinners does little to help them and may only compound their alienation and self-hatred. That's important to think about. Number three, Jesus makes no distinction between persons and he spurns the whole system of ranking and classifying people by their sin. Because that's how the Pharisees did. And be careful because I think a lot of us do this too. The Pharisees saw themselves at the top of a very long line of, of sinners. They were at the top of the righteous. But underneath them is this level of sin and this level of sin and this and this and this. And somewhere here at the bottom are the tax collectors and all these other people that are so bad, they would never have anything to do with them. And we're like, well, that's horrible. Who would ever do that? Where's, where's abortion on your list? Where's homosexuality on your list? Where's adultery? Where's drunkenness? Where's lying? Are you like ranking them as I'm saying them? Are we really that different than the Pharisees? We rank our sins too and we rank people by them too and almost always when we do that, guess who's at the top? We are. We're never, never as hard on ourselves as we are the people around us, ever. And Jesus spurns that entire kind of thinking. He doesn't just open up his table to people who are as good as he is. Because if he did that, guess who he's eating with most nights? Nobody. His table is open to everyone. Everyone, regardless of their sin. Number four, Jesus does not fear being contaminated by others. And that was true of the leper. <laughs> it's true here in chapter two of the sinners. He doesn't fear being contaminated by others, but rather he contaminates them with God's grace and power. He, he's not corrupted by sinners. He comes bearing blessing on them. Not everyone sitting at the table with him turned to him and believed. No doubt. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I just can't imagine that everyone sitting at the table that day believed. And yet here he is doing what no other teacher had ever done. He's with them, spending time with them. If the, this is Garland's quote here. If the object of religious life is believed to be the preservation of purity, whether that's ritual purity as it is here, or it's doctrinal purity or other things. I'm not talking about moral purity. I'm talking about religious purity. Then one tends to look at all others as potential polluters who will make one impure. 
And if everyone around you is a polluter and you're trying to stay holy and religiously pure, then guess how much impact you're going to have on the people around you? None. Jesus rejects this perspective. He does not regard his holiness as something that needs to be safeguarded, but rather he reviews it as God's divine transforming power, which can turn a tax collector into a disciple. Wow. The difference between the Pharisees and Jesus on this point couldn't be more pronounced. The religious outlook of the Pharisees was one that drew strict boundaries around people, it pigeonholed people, and in doing so, it excluded them from God's mercy, grace, and power. The religious outlook of Jesus was one that threw the doors wide open anyone anyone who would come in of those two outlooks let me ask you a pop quiz that i bet everyone in here is going to get 100 on of those two outlooks the outlook of the pharisees that draws lines and pigeonholes and rejects people from god's grace and power or jesus's outlook that opens the doors wide open what do you think the vast majority of american churches have embraced pharisees or jesus it's pharisees What do you think the vast majority of American church members embrace? Which outlook? Jesus's, excuse me, Jesus's, because my imaginary things have to be right. Jesus's or the Pharisees? Which one? It's the Pharisees. Many of us in this room have embraced the Pharisees' religious outlook, rejecting people because of their sin, afraid of them, unwilling to go contaminate ourselves in their world for fear that someone might think we're like them or that we condone that or or anything else that you might possibly think of. Shame on us. We're more like the Pharisees, I fear, than we are like Jesus. I I had some questions here that I I think I'll skip over in terms of, of trying to drive it home. I would simply say to you, as you hear this, what sins come to your mind? What people come to your mind that you have purposefully pushed to arm's length, that you have stayed away from out of fear, out of this wrong religious outlook? The fact of the matter is, you cannot win someone that you are not willing to eat with. Did you hear that? You cannot win someone who you are not willing to eat with. And our goal isn't to to try to bring people to Jesus. Our goal is to bring Jesus to people. Jesus didn't sit in his own house waiting for for these tax collectors to come to him. He went into their house and he ate with them. And and, and this, when I I think about it, this is at the very core, at at the very center, what the essence of Christianity really is all about. Because every other religion, every other religion that you can think of is based on the premise that man needs to search for God. Christianity is based on the premise that God comes searching for man. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Who are we going to be like? Are we going to be like the Pharisees and hold people at arm's length? Or is Cornerstone going to be a church that goes out to our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends and our relatives and all of their sin and all of their brokenness and we bring grace, blessing, 
mercy, the power of God in the gospel to them so that God can take sinners and turn them into disciples. Will you bow your heads for a moment? If, if the Spirit has convicted your heart this morning over the way you view those on the outside, unbelievers, sinners, the tax collectors of your life, if He has convicted you of that, just take a moment and confess that sin to God. You have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten the sin that you have been forgiven of. Confess it, forsake it, and thank God for his grace and mercy. For others, if, if, if the Spirit has brought to mind specific people, co-workers, neighbors, friends, whose lives are a mess, they're deep in sin, and why you may be personally repulsed by it or or wanting to keep it away, the Spirit is, is just impressing on your heart the need to reach out to those people and love them as Christ has loved you. Will you take a moment and ask God to give you the courage, the strength, the humility to do that starting tomorrow? Lord Jesus, it is so easy for us to forget who we are. To, to be like the Pharisees and place ourselves at the top of a very long list of sins that we have, we've judged to, to be of greater or lesser value or impact. To see ourselves as better than those around us and therefore to treat those that we deem less worthy in a less worthy way. The fact of the matter is, Lord, you didn't come to call righteous people. You came to call sinners. And forgive us for ever seeing ourselves as righteous. We want to see ourselves as sinners because that's who you came for. And we need you. We are sick. We need you, the physician, to heal. There are those around us who are sick and they need your healing. And you have sent us out into this world, not to be of it, but to be in it to be with these people who are hurting. They don't even know some of them that they're hurting. And to bring blessing into their life, grace and mercy and truth. Who else is going to bring it? There's no one else. And so Lord, forgive us for our calloused hearts. Forgive us for our, our fear of, of being associated with, with people who are sinners. Our reputations and egos are so big. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our fear of, of going into a situation where we don't know all the answers and we don't know what to do, and so we just do nothing. Forgive us for our inactivity. Help us, Lord, to be like you, to go eat dinner, to speak truth, to show your love, to show grace and mercy be a light in darkness when there is no other light. Help us, Lord, to understand that this is our role. We are ambassadors proclaiming a reconciliation from you. And then, Lord, through these simple acts and 
whether they're big or small, whether they're bold or they start out timid, Lord, will you send your spirit before us into these situations, into these dinners, into these workplaces, into these whatever, and be at work to soften hearts for the gospel so that people come to you and you grow your church through this? Not to our glory, not to the, for the name of Cornerstone, but for the name of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning, which convicts and challenges us. Help us to go out and be different and be like you as a result, we ask in your name.